0: Hi everyone, I'm your host, Kim Winter, Global CEO of Logistics Executive Group. Thanks for joining us today for another vodcast featuring the latest market insights from Logistics Executive Group. If you haven't already, please, by all means, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Logistics Executive TV, to make sure you never miss an episode. Today we're joined by Michael Byrne, who's currently serving as the freight coordinator general for the Commonwealth of Australia. Michael's background is fairly significant player in the uh, in the supply chain logistics market right across the APAC region. Michael has held senior leadership role for LinFox Group in uh, in Australia, LinFox Logistics, the Coates Australia Group, and uh, in recent times the Toll Group through APAC, part of the Japan Post Group. Michael has uh, agreed to join us today, and Michael, welcome and thanks for joining us from, I think, Sydney today. Good
1: afternoon, Kim. So, in a cold city today, a change in the weather, no doubt, very different from where you are today.
0: Yeah, slightly warmer or slightly warmer where we are. Uh, so, your current role is uh, is quite important to the nation, vitally important, in fact. And uh, you've been appointed by the Commonwealth these unique times where there's a, a major operation going on to to kickstart, if you like, and I'll let you put it in your words, but from where I'm sitting, it's kickstarting air freight and enabling the export markets out of Australia to function in amongst some pretty trying conditions. Um, Michael, you're the man in charge, so let's get straight to it. Maybe a short background um, on your role currently uh, for our audience. Uh, what's going on, and uh, what your main task is for the Commonwealth of Australia. So
1: um, thanks for that, Kim. So the first thing is I was going to have a year off, but uh, <laughs> after coal and and twenty five years on the road in Asia and India and the subcontinent and other parts of the world, but. Um, COVID's changed that for me, as it has for lots of other people. I think um, it's there's no playbook here for COVID. There's no playbook here for what's happened to global economies or to supply chains and logistics in general. And um, I was asked to come and uh, by a couple of ministers uh, to come and uh, assist the federal government through the Department of Trade and Australia with doing two things: um, building a team quickly from a whole lot of different government departments, health, Department of Infrastructure, Transportation, uh, Defence, uh, Agriculture, Trade, DFAT, et cetera, um, to do two things, start export again, air freight export again, and to get the national health stockpile back into the country or all the different states. And if you look at the day quarter stopped in Australia, And ninety-one percent of Australia's air freight uh, capacity had collapsed. So we had nine thousand four hundred, I think, international flights into this country uh, every month um, in January. And the day corners finished, there was less than two thousand, and some of them were private charters, private people, etc. So that's not your actual capacity, and. International trade out of Australia, air freight is 1% of the tonnage, but it's 17% of the value uh, because Australian produce around the world is highly prized, it's highly in demand. People have built unbelievable markets in different parts of the world for their seafood, uh, for their fresh meat, for their vegetables, fruits, etc. Australia's uh, well renowned for its food security, food safety, and the quality of its produce, but you're in a position where basically over a two-, three-week period, you've gone from 100% to 9%. So the supply chains weren't wobbly. They were completely broken. And then if you look at Australia as a country, over that night, only Sydney and Melbourne had international freight uh, capability. Western Australia, South Australia, Northern Territory, Queensland and far north Queensland and Tasmania did not have a single international flight at their airports overnight. So you've got to remember, for people who might not comprehend, Australia is as big as uh, continental USA in landmass, but only 26 million people. So get rid of Alaska and, and you can fit Australia in the same as continental USA. Um, but a very, very disparate, disaggregated population. So very, very tough uh, outcomes out over
0: here. Sure, and and uh, well, that, that's a massive. It's a massive remit. It's a massive task you've been given, in yourself and your team. Um, maybe you can give us a bit of a an idea about the type of prioritisation that you've gone gone about in regards to attacking getting the freight moving in, a, in Australia again um, and where you have started from and what, what does this sort of project entail?
1: Um, so the federal government through cabinet allocated uh, uh, a spending envelope, a financial envelope, to get freight moving again in and out of the country, uh, particularly national health stockpile or state health stockpiles and a group of people, and I have a I have a replicant, uh, a lady called Marg Stade, who is a, a two-star um, Air Vice Commodore, retired, and, and we try to work out freight movements from around the world, particularly on inbound, as a lot of people would know, and I wouldn't say I'm an air freight specialist, I'm a heavy supply chain, heavy logistics, uh, asset-heavy person, predominantly land or sea, um, but spent an enormous amount of time overseas, 25 years on the road overseas. In. So that gives me a great, really good understanding of trade and a really good understanding of manufacturing, particularly, uh, from what I've been doing. And it's been to get those stockpiles back into the country and then to either use those flights or use flights here to uh, move tonnes. So when... when um, you have 9% only, you need to build that back fairly quickly and what we call stitch the country back together. And the only way to do that is to go to people who are going to move actual big tonnes in perishables. So um, we, we have to focus on the big tonnes here, lamb, red meat, uh, crustaceans um, and salmon, and you can usually build full loads out of them. Or get very close to, and then ride like vegetables and uh, other products off them into those flights. Um, if you look at if you look at the day we started, uh, air freight costs had moved. If X is the last twelve month average price in Australia for air freight as our blended aggregate number, um, our prices on that day were between three point eight times X. Uh, or 13 to 13 times X. Wow. So that shows you how much air freight had risen so quickly. Um, and then if you look at that, and logistics costs is 5 to 10% of a, a cost of a product, you're saying it's 13 times that 5%. It quickly destroys the inherent value of a lot of products. So there's a lot of. Uh, We've had to do a lot of work on the economics of the inherent value of our type of agricultural, agricultural type of product. Those same maths equations don't apply in the health space or what's in the national interest because, yeah, you, you can't put a cost on that. Okay. So we quickly went to how we could get tonnes moving as quickly as possible, not kilos, and potentially for birds because we're just trying to um, not only restitch the country back together, but also to get more just play economics. So it was about getting as more birds in the air as quickly as possible from only 9% of the original number to try to get some people back flying again, people coming back to the country. I'll, I'll give you an example. Qantas uh, alone were doing um, six or seven flights a day to Japan. Um, and then you have ANA and then you have JAL and then you have Jetstar and then you have Virgin. Yeah, this is pre-COVID, yeah? This is pre-COVID. And three weeks ago we had one flight to Japan a week. Mm. So when you've gone from six or seven with one airline a day to one a week. Um, Brisbane Airport, for instance, uh, had 40 international flights a day Uh, and we've got that back to five a day at the moment.
0: So what is... um so thanks for that. And that gives some perspective to the scale and, and the sort of metrics involved and the variations involved in, in capacity availability, which is severely limited, but obviously being rebuilt. Um, and I presume that's similar around other, other countries around the world. I mean, do you have much contact with other organisations and people such as yourselves charged with similar tasking by governments around the world? And, and if so, are you seeing some sort of scale?
1: New Zealand had the same issue. Like, we're both so far away from the rest of the world. We, we don't have land bridges, obviously. We're not like Canada or we're not like the US, where you can land bridge across borders, New Mexico or Canada. You can't, in Europe, you can land bridge fairly easily. Um, you've got all those countries in a small area, Um, Same in Southeast Asia predominantly. Australia is a long way away and and it relies on um, air freight, it relies on sea, um, Mm. as does New Zealand because they're they're islands or depending on your definition, Australia is a continent or an island. Mm. Um, New Zealand has a really tough time. We speak to them as well. They are doing the same type of thing, a little bit of a different model. Um, there are a couple of people trying to do the same things we are doing to keep their exporters going. If you, if you look at um, why it's important, a lot of those type of exports that we're involved in are country towns, rural communities, rural fishermen, um, abattoirs, slaughterhouses out in farmland. And as we know, if those, um, if those jobs go, those country towns go. If you're if you're in a town with 400 people and the abattoir is the biggest employer there, and it employs 200 people of the 400. Um, if that abattoir closes, the town goes, the service station goes, the bakery goes, the news agent, the post office, the bank, and that country town never comes back. We're we're trying to um, ensure that our farmers and our fishermen and our Producers who have fought for thirty or forty years to have unbelievably great markets in the world don't get wiped out by COVID. Not from the disease, but from the economic ramifications through no air freight.
0: Sure. Okay. And and what uh, this may be a little bit left of centre from your expertise, but I suspect you may have an exposure uh, to this. I mean as far as your understanding is concerned, to what extent are producers, um, resource producers, food mainly, fresh food produce producers in Australia, uh, recalibrating and uh, selling to local markets versus international markets? I mean, anecdotally, my understanding is that Australia produces 2 to 3 times the amount of food, if not more then it requires to feed a nation of 25, 26 million people. Do you know That's what's exactly happening right. to the production capabilities and where the, extra, the, the excess production is going? Is it going into lo- the local market? Is it affecting prices?
1: Um, no. So the first comment's are all right. So Australia is about 26 million people. It makes enough food for 73 million. Uh, we produce enough food for 73 million. Australia is one of the, the big... Um, food bowls of the world. Um, we we could need we could need everything we produce, um, and a lot of that goes yeah. to Asia and different parts of the world the US. And look, there, there's a lot of people who are going to have it to calibrate their model. Um, and what we're trying to do is give people time to uh, think with great agility because their operating methodology is going to have to change. If, if you read that IATA report that came out about three weeks ago, it says that international air travel won't get back to normal till between 2022 and 2023. That is a long way away. Like if um, we're, we're doing some work, we think it might be, might be um, next northern summer, so that's a year away. Um Prices aren't going to come down materially in air freight out of Australia until there's passengers. Now, Australia being this island or continent, we might have a couple of bubbles with passengers to New Zealand or Singapore particularly, but (coughs) uh, that is not going to really change the dial. We're at today, last weekend we were at um, 68% of Australia's air freight have collapsed, so we've gone from 91% 91% to 68% uh, in eight weeks. Um, we keep trying to stimulate more planes in the air. We've seen prices come down to a, from that original 3.8 times to 13 times X to about 50% above X on some lanes, particularly uh, Melbourne, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Hong Kong, uh, to about 8 times X. So we're still as high as 8 times X. Probably the average is around three to six times X. Uh, We need to try to get that down to maybe twice of X uh, and then we'll get out. There will be a new normal here. There will be uh, a new model in this post-COVID world, but air freight isn't going back to pre-COVID levels in the foreseeable future.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting um, update. For for us here in the audience, I trust. Um, In recent weeks, we've interviewed three of the world's most senior air cargo specialists from some of the major airlines and IATA um, and uh, Ram Menon, ex uh, ex Emirates, um, and including uh, including also Des Vatanas from IATA, and uh, we have. Been exposed to just the scale of transformation that will be required to really rejig and reshape and rescale and and remodel air cargo and air freight globally. What are you seeing as uh, some of the implications that we spread our, our focus out beyond just the air freight scenario and the specific tasking that you're charged with in Australia currently? Um, what are you seeing as the impacts on the need for transformation in supply chain by supply chain players and by supply chain networks as a result of what's happened in recent months?
1: Oh, well, you've known me a long time. I've been banging on about that for 25 years. Um, I I haven't spent much time really in Australia over the last 25 years except for flying in and out of the weekends. to, to me, to me, it's more important than ever, but uh, for 25 years, lots of people haven't listened to me, but uh, they're probably not still now, but I think that COVID has shown that it's even more important. That, um, we, we just don't have the talent in the industry that we really need uh, in supply chain. Um, it has improved over the last decade, the last two decades, but as you can see, out of COVID, supply chain is our C-suite our role. Um, supply chain is not somewhere where someone's closest to the gate anymore. That was their job as they walked out the door. Um, I don't think we have the real thinking still in supply chains globally about agility. Um, I don't think we have. Um, I don't think we have the real thinking about collaboration. Lots of people talk about collaboration and agility, but look how easily supply chains were broken and then they couldn't be repaired. Uh, And then people around the world are running out of simple things with a a 10% or 20% purchase increase in volume. Like What what we've seen out of here is that supply chains are much less resilient than everyone would have thought. And, And a lot of that in my view, is because that there's not that deep amount of thinking that's gone into uh, supply chain resilience. And a lot of the resilience has to be in the people and their ability to be adaptable and think with great agility. I think that we've take, people have taken for granted they can show up at Brisbane Airport and get on 40 flights a day uh, to Asia I was speaking to, I was speaking, people don't want to work together. I was speaking to tuna fishermen in uh, Port Lincoln and some of the most prized tuna in the world that goes to the Japanese markets every day. Uh, they had six flights a day to choose from. Now, Port Lincoln is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and when I said to them, well, you're going to have to work together with the abalone fishermen and the tuna fishermen and the salmon fishermen, they so we, said, we haven't had, ever had to do that. We can't do that. They're competing for stomach space. And I said, well, unless you're going to work together and be more collaborative, the only stomachs that are going to be empty are yours because you're not going to sell any product. Um, People, I think out of COVID, are finding out they have to be much more collaborative. They have to work with people and be more open to working with people. They must think with greater agility because that is not possible anymore at the moment and won't be for the next year. So unless you're going to try to adapt your manufacturing, adapt your your production, adapt your abattoir, change it and your work processes and your, and your industrial instruments, all in a couple of months you won't exist. So transformation, I don't know if I'd even call it that. I think that people are going to have to be really adaptable to survive. Look at the debt levels around the world. Look at the unemployment levels, look at the, the balance sheet loadings in people's uh, businesses. Unless people uh, think really differently, really quickly, they're going to be a casualty uh, of the economic outcome of COVID.
0: Sure, We uh, we introduced uh, and interviewed uh, Stan Wright as part of our uh, Global Air Cargo Specialist interview recently. And Stan is the CEO and founder of uh, SASI, which is a global consulting firm and as one of the the three amigos of uh, Dez Vitanis and and, uh, Ram Menon. So Stan was saying during our conversation last week that he saw the requirement for a complete rethink by all of the players if we're talking about air cargo and movement of of freight and, and goods by air complete rethink in the relationships between the airlines, the carriers, the regulators, um, the ground handlers, the freight forwarders, the customs clearance people, all the way through that supply chain to the uh, the beneficial cargo owners, of course, being key players in the whole, whole matrix. Um, from your perspective, given your most of your last 30 years or so has been in land logistics and uh, contract logistics. Uh, Do you see in Australia, in in the APAC region, uh, a rethink required uh, across that spectrum of supply chain? Um, For example, the reliance that many organisations and products have had on China as one of the powerhouse or the powerhouse manufacturing Producers in the world and the near-shoring, offshoring uh, argument. Are you seeing you know real rethink taking place now? I mean, um, Australia is well, a, well, as you say, it's in the middle. It's the middle of nowhere compared to the rest of the world. As is New Zealand. Um, what's the thinking?
1: Look, I think um, I, I definitely will answer that. before I get there, I think that uh, it's not only exporters and producers who have to think about the real changes to their model uh, we're de- I'm dealing with airlines every day, um, 10 of them, who are, are contracted to the federal government uh, here to do certain work in charters and blocks and grant, what we call grants, and that, that's been a real struggle. Yeah, with about half of those airlines who are saying, well, this is our model. This is how you have to book freight on it. I go, well, that isn't going to work because the freight doesn't come that way anymore. And I've spent, I don't know, 25% of my time arguing with airlines where they say, well, this is how we want the freight. This is when we want it. This is how it is. This is what you're going to pay for. I go, well, there'll be be no cargo for it. You can keep flying your planes. They'll just run empty. Uh, Because that is not now... The norm. Um, So I think everyone has to change and and airlines also have to adapt to a very changed model. Look, I get asked that question, that second question, uh, probably more than anyone. uh, As a lot of people who would know me, I've spent uh, a long time offshoring, outsourcing, playing the labour arbitrage around the world. Moving manufacturing out of different countries to China, to other places, out of China, into Vietnam, into India, into Bangladesh. So it's a fantastic question. Uh, and I have some really strong personal views there. Um, the first one is that price point. So we can all talk about that we're going to take all the manufacturing back into our own countries and we're going to take it back to Australia or the US or parts of Western Europe. I just can't see because I don't think people will pay the price point. I think um, why would you pay $55,000 for a Toyota um, 4Runner or whatever they call the higher lux? Uh, If it was made in Australia, you pay $45,000 for exactly the same car if it's made in Thailand. Why would you pay $1,000 for a washing machine or a dishwasher made in orange where the same company makes it for $600 in South Korea? Like, I just can't see people going back and saying they're willing to pay. They'll talk about they're willing to do it, but in the end, they're not. And I, don't, I think that applies around the world in the Western countries. And I think that would be bad for globalisation. I think globalisation has been one of the – I still think it's been one of the great things out of the Marshall Plan, if you're a reader of history all the way back there, for uh, economic growth, uh, longevity, uh, freedom, uh, democracy, democracy. Uh, people's health, education, female participation, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things have come from the free movement of uh, currency, trade, and people. And to say now that we're going to be nationalists and bring everything back, I don't think people are going to pay for it. I don't think they're realising what we're saying. and I think we're probably too far down the path to do that. I think the second thing is for a country like Australia where they talk about they want to bring back X, That might be possible. Some countries might be able to do it, but you have to have the mathematicians, the scientists and the engineers to do it. Um, A lot of manufacturing requires different skill sets. My understanding is China turns out more engineers out of that one country than the rest of the world combined every year. So (laughs) to say that we're going to bring everything back to different countries, I, I think it sounds nice in the Mm. Uh, in the heat of battle, but I don't think it's uh, economic rationalism.
0: So you're saying... It,
1: might be, it yeah. might be some form of nationalism, but I don't think it's economically
0: rational. Yeah, so you're saying that uh, economic sense or economic priorities will, will override political uh, political uh, convenience or political stories in the meantime? In
1: the mind, comparative, economic comparative
0: advantage. Okay. Uh, countries need to play to their comparative
1: advantages.
0: Sure, sure.
1: I'm, I'm sure there'll sure. be a lot of debate about that. As I said, that's a very personal issue um, and, and personal point of view. I think that um, countries need to play their strength. You can't, it can't be all things to all people in all parts of the world every day. There's, there's no country that can do that.
0: Sure. Do you think, just casting back then, throwing back to the issue of um, of food security and Australia's role or its, its its significance in the provision of food, fresh food, high quality product globally? Um, do you think this most recent uh, few months or the the pandemic has has improved or damaged the reputation of Australia as a food supplier? Do people accept the fact that the their capacity just hasn't been there to to fill the orders. Um, is it, is brand Australia been damaged, or is it is it going to survive a, intact and, and maybe even improved?
1: Look, I think um, demand hasn't been there either, at, like at around the world. So everything's relative. Um, so Australian produce is highly prized, highly well thought of. Uh, but it's also at that high end a lot of it. Um, so that we restaurants being closed around the world and food services, but pubs, clubs, theatres, uh, events are being closed. Um, that hasn't been the demand either okay. at the same level. You look at you look at your region, lamb. And those type of things just wasn't as strongly sought after. We are still sending lots. Um, look, I think Australian produce, and I, again, I'm not a, a produce uh, international trade expert on produce, but the demand is definitely there for Australian produce. It is highly sought after, um, highly valued. Um, we need to make sure we can get that out of the country. I think... Uh, we collectively need to change our models to do that. I think there's big issues with everyone's supply chains, not just in agriculture and agriculture. I don't think it's just in Australia. Look at healthcare around the world. Look at medicines. Um, look at look at spare parts for um, around the world for things of what would be deemed as national interest: electricity, water. Uh, spare parts for those type of things. A lot of those go by air freight, Uh, not not just to Australia, to every country. A lot of them come out of Germany or uh, Switzerland or France, some of it out of the US. Air air freight moved a lot of those essential spare parts for uh, infrastructure around the world in different countries. Uh, Some of the countries I've worked in, they have all found it hard to – Although they have long inventory lists of spare parts, they would be eating in their spare part inventory levels. Okay.
0: Well,
1: so there's, more, there's more things to think about this than agriculture or aquaculture.
0: Sure, sure. No, absolutely. I guess uh, to, to really wrap up, Michael, and appreciate your insights on, on exactly what's going on and the tasking that you've, you've currently got, um, again, panning back out in the broader supply chain, Maybe some tips from you for whether it be SMEs, small organisations, or or larger organisations operating across the uh, the logistics um, sector, across the supply chain in itself, extended supply chain. Um, Any tips or insights from you in terms of managing through to the end of 2020? We're in extremely dynamic times. It's to some extent, it's, 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 a, it's a broader impact uh, than any other time other than wartime if you're looking at a global perspective on the impact on supply chains. Um, any tips or, or insights into organisations to encourage them or things to think about to charge uh, forward and, uh, and transform through to uh, the end of this year and beyond? I think I think uh, in that supply
1: chain space, I, I think there are there's four or five things that people have to do. Um, so there is limited supply of certain things, air freight, uh, and we've seen even we've seen even uh, this part of the world real problems with sea freight, uh, in some cases as well with um, volume being cut, so then ships. Lanes are cut, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The first one is people have the unfortunately much more in the detail uh, at a really senior level than they ever are, because there are so many things changing every day. It's all about minutiae, unfortunately, till we get out of this. And senior senior people, oh, I'm doing a role that I I I haven't done since I was 35 but I'm 55, Um, people have to be much more in the detail and really feel it and touch it because it is so granular. Um, And if you think you can fly over this to 35,000 people, no planes up there anyway, so don't worry about that. You need to get down into the absolute detail at the moment. One, need great agility. Not only the individual executive, but their teams need great agility. Um, planes and, and, and ships are finite at the moment. We, we've tended to think they're nearly infinite. Uh, they're very, very finite. They are a resource that goes extremely quickly and it's wasted. So, manufacturers, exporters, supply chain people have to be really agile to capture that. Uh, so, they've got to be close to the action. The only way that I see people uh, getting out of this reasonably unscarred is they need to collaborate with a lot more people. Um, they need to, your enemy, the bloke you hated down the road, he is now your friend. <laughs> you, you have to work with more people to either build scale or but to pay for the cost or share resources or share uh, inputs because your balance sheet's probably strained, your revenue in the main's probably gone down, your cash flow's got tighter. And and unless you're going to work with a couple of people in the reams of the law of that country, like we have the ACCC here, you've got to work with people and collaborate and put down your old hatreds of each other and so we're going to get through this together. People really have to collaborate. If the next thing, and I, I say this to manufacturers and exporters, you, ha- you have to start thinking about two things out of this. One, you are not going back to pre-COVID rates or pre-COVID predictability in the short term. Um, it's just not going to happen, and you need to change your business model. Saying that your business model has been unbelievably successful for a decade and made you a lot of money, unless you change that, it's going to lose you a lot of money. You need to step up and really lead about agility, changing manufacturing points, changing with looking at what you do uh, with your offshoring, onshoring, labor arbitrage, how you play that better, um, what you're going to do in the context of geopolitical and economic. Uh, issues and economic nationalism nearly, uh, and give your companies uh, a better, a real insight into what you need to do in that strategic reform of your supply chains, because your supply chains aren't resilient enough. There's very few supply chains that have been resilient enough to survive and thrive here. Um, yes, a lot of them are getting through, but they're paying five or six times customers are unhappy. Uh, this is a wake-up call about for everyone that more work has to go into supply chains and the only way you can do that is have the best people. You've got to keep improving the DNA of, of supply chain in an organisation. It, it's been seen here to be an absolute key to your business's success or failure.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that and, and appreciate it. So, you know, modelling, collaboration, agility, Getting the right talent. Um, you know, we've, we've uh, the most recent recruitment that we're doing pretty much right throughout the APAC region, in Australia, where some of our biggest clients have traditionally been over the last 20 years. The type of uh, characteristics that our clients are now looking at uh, is not so much the technical capability, um, but more that character, that um, Capability around communication, about the ability to pivot, to think laterally, uh, to be able to bring teams together, to look at new ways of doing things, and uh, it's really interesting when we when we're taking deep briefs from some of our larger customers right right up and down the APAC region that this is now the focus. So I think that sort of reinforces. The comments that you're making in regard to what you think people are going to need to be looking for—it's translating right the way through to job descriptions uh, right across the supply chain, and particularly in Australia because I I think the pressure is really on. There is some unique challenges in Australia and New Zealand, and because of the distance from the rest of the markets in the world.
1: Yeah, I think that. and no doubt, I've done the same, so I'm happy to take some of the blame. We've, we've made a lot of people very, very structured, really disciplined, very, and, and I am too, sequentially driven. So we think very sequentially. That's a lot of supply chain people have, have done mathematics or some form of engineering or economics, etc., and, and applied those principles. What we what we need right at the moment, the last seven weeks, is real imagination. Uh, a real ability to think unbelievably laterally, and be be able to discard some in some ways that training because that training won't get you anywhere. There'll be nothing going moving at all, um, and you have to stimulate the economy nearly again to get it to get it back when you've only got nine percent air freight tonnage. From 100% over the, over basically a weekend, you go from 100, maybe two weeks, you go from 100% to nine, following the same pathway a sequential model ain't going to get you anywhere. <laughs> so we, we have to, uh, we probably have to give our supply chain people a little bit more imagination and ability to think outside the box a little bit more to build longer term resilience.
0: Okay. Look, well, Michael. I appreciate the time. I know it's getting late where you are currently. I'm really looking forward to getting back to Australia uh, and to Asia. Uh, a lot of clients over there, and and uh, a lot of friends and colleagues. Uh, the industry, I mean, the economy there. I mean, it's, you're you're wide open now. Your, your rate of uh, infection is very low. Uh, New Zealand went down to uh, level one today. I think Australia is at level two. There's a lot of uh, freedom now in the economy socially and uh, economically the country is opening wide up again. So uh, really looking forward to getting back there. appreciate you taking the time today uh, to our audience. I I trust that Michael's input uh, and sharing of ideas and sharing of his experience have been uh, helpful and useful. Michael, any final words from you before we sign off?
1: I think, uh, first of all, thanks for that. I'm sure we'll all come out the other side of this uh, if we work much more collaboratively together. I think um, we've tended to all try to build our own supply chains. A lot of people have tried to build things in complete uh, isolation to everyone else. This has shown that unless um, we build loops and interconnect with a whole lot of people, One supply chain by itself is very, very fragile. Um, And and we need to think about uh, how we maybe over-design things ourselves uh, and make them fragile and, and learn the lesson from that.
0: Great. Thanks, Michael. So Michael Byrne, Export Freight Coordinator General for the Commonwealth of Australia. To everybody in the audience, thanks for your time. To everybody in the supply chain doing it tough at the moment, word of encouragement. Uh, for everybody across the whole extended supply chain, keep up the good work for those service providers, whether it be through air freight or on the the shipping side, Uh, those organisations and individuals looking to try and make sure that we keep capacity up and keep economies booming again. Uh, Well done to those of you doing a great job and encouragement to those of you charging through the process to, of course, anybody doing it tough Uh, We send you our best wishes to all the first responders who have kept the globe pumping on throughout this uh, unprecedented pandemic period. Uh, We uh, thank you for all of your efforts. Uh, To everybody, thank you all and uh, good evening. Cheers.